Um, we are talking about Acts, but before we do that, I want to say just a couple of quick things. I know that Scott brought this up in the announcements, but I want to uh, bring it up just quickly again. Uh, the cultural awareness training that we're doing, uh, not this Tuesday, but the following Tuesday, the 26th. And um, we are growing in our ministry or our partnership with the ministry called Straight Up, which is on the northwest side of Indy. And I think this is, it's a very different world. It's maybe, you know, 30, 40 blocks, but it's a very different world. And it's important that we understand that world uh, more before we're able to really care and love um, uh, um, the people down there. And so I would encourage you uh, to, to really consider uh, seriously going to that. Uh, and then also I wanted to let you know, uh, we prayed about this last week about the Great Banquet team, as we've been talking about quite a bit over the last several months. We have a new Great Banquet opening up in Brazil. And so uh, we had some real travel issues because of the hurricanes, but uh, the group did finally get down there. They were able to leave here just a couple days late, but they had kind of built in some time uh, beforehand. And so they were able to get there. And I've gotten some texts from Steve Wright, and he tells me that things are going really well and that he can't uh, wait to come here and to kind of tell us what's happened. So, um, so we will reserve a good 30 minutes for him to do that, I have a feeling. Uh, he is pretty excited, and so I can't wait to kind of talk a little bit more about and hear more about what's happening there. But I wanted to let you know that because we've been praying for them. And in fact, uh, some women left even just yesterday in order to be down there for the Women's Great Banquet. And so uh, we are excited for, uh, for that ministry down there. All right, we are continuing our look at the book of Acts. And so today we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. This uh, is probably the most famous of all texts in Acts, um, and maybe even um, in the Scripture. And so let us begin with what Luke has to say to us this morning. Luke says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, as the Spirit gave them ability." Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What? does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning in a state of gratitude. We thank you, Lord, for the Kellers. We thank you for their listening to your call. 
We continue to pray for their ministry there in Mongolia. We thank you, Lord, for the ways in which your good news is handed down from generation to generation. Lord, we come to you as well this morning with praise for the great banquet down in Brazil. We pray that you would continue to be with them, that your spirit would be upon them. We pray for us here, Lord, that this well-known text, God, that so easily can be lost because of just how comfortable we are with it. We pray that you would, within us, spark the fire of your spirit, that we, that this world might not be the same. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. So last week, uh, we began our look at Acts by talking about the importance of being a witness. And uh, we talked about how uh, this is a little bit of an odd thing probably for the disciples. They weren't exactly expecting this. When Jesus turned and looked to them and said that you will be my witnesses, that all of us are called to be God's witnesses, and that even though we may not feel like we are up for the task, and even though we may not be qualified, that Jesus says, no, you will be my witness. And we also said in the same breath that Jesus said, you will be my witness, he also tells them to wait, to gather together in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus said, well, you know what? You will be my witnesses, but you cannot do it alone. You need to wait for the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus went on and told them that you are going to be my witness. Once the Spirit comes upon you and gives you power, you will be my witness in Jerusalem, which is wherever we work, live, or play. In Judea, which is places that are perhaps a little ways away, but not too far away. In Samaria, which means with those people with whom you may not like, or with whom you may disagree, or with people who may not like you, and to the ends of the earth. So when we left them last week, they were waiting. They were waiting and praying. Which leads us to this week, of course, where all of a sudden... The Holy Spirit finally comes. Now, before I begin to talk a little bit more about this passage, I think it's important uh, for us to address something, which is that this particular story, as well as many of the other stories that we will cover in the next few weeks um, of the early church, they can sometimes just seem almost, uh, almost outlandish. They're amazing, the stories. In fact, they oftentimes feel very different than the church that we typically experience, right? And so what happens then when you have a story that seems so different than your own reality, we tend to do one of two things. We either domesticate the story or we minimize the story, right? Where we say, well, maybe, maybe Luke was exaggerating a little bit there, and maybe they weren't really selling everything, and, and maybe, you know, maybe they weren't really speaking other languages. We, we tend to minimize or domesticate it, or we tend to just kind of be enamored by it, but almost like a museum piece, we take the story and we put it up on a shelf. We, we're not really changed by it. We're just kind of, oh, that's kind of interesting. And then we go on with the real world. And I'm afraid that when we do that, what happens is that the story then doesn't actually do anything in our lives, which of course it's supposed to do. 
I was thinking about this when it comes to uh, my freshman year of high school. This is what it reminded me of. My freshman year of high school, like many young men who grew up here in America, I wanted to be a professional football player, right? And so I had high aspirations. You can imagine a man of my physique that that would have been easy to have thought that that would happen. And so I was very hopeful. And, uh, and so I, I joined the freshman football team. And my high school team was pretty good. In fact, two years before I started going there, they were ranked number one in the nation. And a big part of the reason for that was because, as I may have shared before, uh, Emmett Smith, if you don't know Emmett Smith, that's fine, but Emmett Smith uh, was, on my, uh, was on my high school football team. And so he had gone on to the University of Florida uh, when I got there. But one of his younger brothers, Emery, uh, was, was a freshman just like me. Now Emery, it was known, was a little bit bigger and a little bit faster than Emmett. Now he couldn't find the holes like Emmett could, but he was pretty good. In fact, he went on and played at Clemson and then uh, went to a few scout teams for the NFL. But he was pretty big and he was really fast. And I remember it actually, quite frankly, almost like it happened yesterday, which is that we were at practice and I was a defensive back and uh, I was playing quite a bit back, as I recall. And, 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 and on this particular play, Emory Smith, he got around the offensive line, the defensive line, and the linebackers very quickly. And before you knew it, it was just me and Emory. And he was running in my direction. And every step that he took closer to me, the dreams of my NFL career began to be shattered. And I had a big decision to make. Do I go and try to get in his way? Or do I act like I was trying to get him and then really run after he's passed me? I'm here today, which means I did not try to get in his way. And as he ran past and I looked like I was trying to go after him, I might as well have, though I didn't, I played the season out, but I might as well have gone straight to the locker room, taken my pads and my helmet and those dreams and placed them up on the shelf. See, because in a moment, just like that, I realized that there was a stark difference between an NFL type of player, right, the real world, right, versus my dreams of what might be. And in many ways, I think this is what we do with the beginning of Acts and with, with much of Acts. We see these stories and they seem so different, right? They're so radical. This is like the NFL, if you will, of churches. And we are playing in the peewee league, it seems. And so we don't really take it all that seriously. We, we bring it out usually around May or so, sometimes in June. And, and we bring it out and we say, oh, this is fun. Maybe we wear red and, and maybe we sing a couple Holy Spirit songs. But then we, we, we put it back on the shelf and we don't deal with it because this is the real world. That's kind of dreamlike. And I think, again, when we do that, we are missing out on the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are missing out on the critical nature of this particular text. And so the question then is, what does it mean to us in 2017 in Zionsville or Carmel, Indianapolis? What does the Pentecost mean to us? How do we make sure we don't just put it up on a shelf? And that's the lens, it seems to me, through which we should see the beginning of Acts, including the story of Pentecost. It is a remarkable story. There they are. They've been praying and waiting. My guess is they were not expecting the Spirit to come down just as it did, but 
It did in such a way that it sounded as if it was a mighty wind blowing through that room. There were tongues of fire that were dancing around. All of a sudden, everything happening inside of there began to change, and they began to speak in other languages, in foreign languages. And not only that, but outside, apparently, they were making such a ruckus inside that there were people from all over the world, we are told, who were listening and were paying attention. And they were struck, right? They were struck. First of all, we've talked about this before, that it was Galileans, right? Galileans who were notorious for not being very proficient in language acquisition, right? And so they said, is this Galileans? What are these kind of hillbilly of folks doing speaking other languages, right? And they were amazed, we're told. In fact, not just they were, but all, we are told, were amazed and astonished. Many of them asked the question, what, what does this mean? Others, of course, wondered if perhaps because this was a festival time, they had not been imbibing in new wine. They were wondering whether or not they were drunk, which I so appreciate. Again, Luke including that. Because if all Luke said is that they all thought were, were just amazed, then you would wonder if it were true. There will always be critics, if you will, around you. And so the fact that they were wondering that gives me more faith. And they, of course, were sitting around because there are many who enjoy watching the antics of those who are somewhat intoxicated. What a story. But if we aren't to take that story and say, that was cool, and put it up on the shelf. If we're called to actually have that story do something in us and through us, then what's the lens through which we understand Pentecost? Churches for millennia, two of them at least, have been wondering that very same question. They've wrestled with what you do with Pentecost. If you don't want to minimize it or domesticate it, if you don't want to put it on the shelf, how exactly do you deal with it? And they've dealt with it in a myriad of ways. One of the ways, of course, is uh, one that's very familiar to me, which is the, the way the tradition of Pentecostals, how they have dealt with it. Now, I, I think I've told you this story, though I couldn't find it in my notes, and then I decided I didn't care. I was going to say it again anyways. And it's a story that, that happened when I was back in college, and I went to a, a Pentecostal undergrad, and uh, I, I had a good friend of mine, and we lived with five guys in a house, and one of them uh, went and worked in a large Pentecostal church, a very large church in Oklahoma City one summer, and, and they were going to go for a summer uh, or a, um, a, a senior high youth camp one week, and he needed counselors. And so he asked if we would, you know, if the four other friends of his would come and be counselors. And we thought, sure, that will be great. And so we we went. We got there on a Saturday, I think, and they were going to leave Sunday afternoon. So of course, then, if you're there on Sunday morning, you got to go to you got to go to church, right? This is what you do. And so, unless there's an Indianapolis Colts opening game. And so we, um, so we went, right? And we went there on Sunday morning, and this was a massive church. I mean, several hundred people there. I mean, this, the, the, the sanctuary could probably fit over a thousand. I don't know exactly. I wasn't counting, but it was pretty big. And, and so Jake, my friend, he met us there, and then he walked us down. Uh, again, these are the memories you don't forget. He walked us down the aisle, and then he sat us right there on the front row. Right? And remember this, you probably remember this, but if you go to a Pentecostal church, you don't sit in the front row 
unless you want to get involved. And so we were there. I was not very pleased that we were on the front row. I knew this lesson, but I also knew that right behind us were all the high schoolers who were going to go on the camp, and you didn't want to seem like you were the reprobate of the bunch. And so I said, okay, well, I'll just stand there anyways. And, and so sure enough, about 20 minutes into the singing, right? And this is a good Mongolian worship service. This was just the beginning, you know? And so sure enough, a gentleman walks up. I come to find out his name was Steve and he starts worshiping or starts worshiping. He starts whispering to the worship director. And I don't know exactly what's being whispered, but I know it's not going to be good. And sure enough, then after the song, he hands the microphone over, the worship uh, director does to the, to Steve. And Steve says, last Friday night, two days ago, worship service on Friday nights. We were here, and we got drunk in the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> I need a mic right here, because this is what it is, this is what you would do. And we were, we were there for two or three hours. I was laid out. My wife was laid out. We were all laid out. We were all drunk in the Holy Ghost. And then he says, who here wants to get drunk in the Holy Ghost? Well, there was contingent over here of the faithful, and they were ready. So as soon as he said that, I mean, they are jumping up and down. They are waving. They are like right here, right? Please choose me. Over here, again, we were experienced Pentecostals, so we knew that you couldn't do two things. One is, don't do that, because then you will get called. But you also can't kind of bow your head and put your hands in your pockets, because then they'll really know you need the Holy Ghost, right? And so we did what you do, right? Well, much like a shark who can smell the victim of his blood, sure enough, he came right down to me. And pulled me forward. And there there were hundreds of people staring at me. And here is me and my good friend Steve. <laughs> and he said, son, have you ever been filled with the, or, or drunk on the Holy Ghost? I tried to sideswipe it by saying, I'm, I'm filled with the Holy Ghost. And he said, I'm not talking about filled with the Holy Ghost. I'm talking about slap happy, walk around all stumbling crazy like drunk in the Holy Ghost. And I said, no, sir. <laughs> so he put his hands on my head and he just started praying. And everybody was praying and everybody was holding out their hands and I knew he wanted me to take a fall. I knew that's what he wanted. And I knew that there were people, all the youth were behind me. I thought, do I fall? What do I do? And I, I, could, I couldn't do it. Not in clear conscience. So I just kept praying, dear God, please have him leave me alone. And after about three or four minutes, it felt like an eternity. It may not even have been that long. I mean, I was sweating. Finally, he realized that I was not going to get drunk. And so he went over to the people over here who were so excited. And I continued to kind of hold my hands up and then just slowly kind of moonwalk back while my friends were all chuckling in delight. Is that what we do with this passage to make sure we don't put this text up on the shelf. 
I don't think it is, although I want to say, especially if my mother happens to listen to this recording, I do give props to the fact that Pentecostals actually believe that the Spirit of God is still alive. And there are times when I think good Presbyterians might have a lesson to learn because of the fact that they believe at any moment Jesus could do something in their lives or in the lives of those they love. That said, I don't think that that's necessarily what we need to do with this particular passage in order to make it alive. In fact, I kind of think that in many ways my good friend Steve got it a little bit wrong, which is that he missed out on the reality of what had just happened earlier, in, or earlier, right before Jesus arises, which is that Jesus said, you will have the Holy Spirit and it will give you the power, not so that you can feel weird or feel interesting or walk around drunk, but so that you can be a witness to those outside of the community of faith. In other words, while the Spirit of God, and you see this certainly in other parts of the New Testament, where it certainly can move one, and that's important and it can be a comforter, its primary purpose, by and large, is not to do something simply in your life, but is to change you in such a way that you can then go and help someone else change their lives because of the Jesus and the Spirit that they see in you. It is there primarily, not just so that you can experience God, but so that others can experience God in a deeper way. Isn't that what we're seeing happening in Pentecost? The Spirit comes along, and all of a sudden, these believers are able to communicate in some way that speaks to those who are outside of its walls. All of a sudden, others are able to experience God. What does it say? It says, how do we understand these people? But what we know is that they are speaking about God and his mighty deeds. You know what the word for that is? Witness. Now, it is true that in the midst of that, of course, there are those for whom, as they looked at it, they were very negative. What's wrong with these people? Why are they so drunk? Are they drunk? What's going on? But what I have come to believe, quite frankly, is that the worst thing in the world is not for those outside of the church to have a negative reaction about the church. The worst thing in the world, quite frankly, is for the world to have no reaction at all. Because what that means is that they have done nothing to make any kind of impact at all on the community around them. I will take negative reaction over no reaction at all. In fact, a spirit-filled church, it seems to me, should in some way be getting some sort of reaction from the outsiders. I like what N.T. Wright says. He asks a couple of really important questions. He says this. He says, Have our churches today got enough energy, enough spirit-driven new life to make onlookers pass any comment at all? And then he says this. Has anything happened in our churches which might make people think, we were drunk. That is an awesome Pentecost question. 
Not so much are we doing things so that people are stumbling around up front or even in their neighborhoods. But are we doing things in such a way that people begin to wonder if there isn't something wrong with us? Because we seem to be living in a completely different way and not seeing the world in the same way that they do. What? What would it look like for us to be a people who are so filled with the Holy Spirit that it almost appears to others as if we are intoxicated by something? I mean, let's, let's, let's think about this. This is a legitimate question, right? So what does our world look like? Well, let's take this one topic. Let's take materialism. We are a world who thinks that the more you have, the more you like, and the more you are liked. We are a people for whom, as we've talked about before, that our worth oftentimes comes from what we have. It gives us a sense of meaning. It gives us a sense of security. It gives us a sense of purpose. What would it look like to be drunk in the world's eyes for how we deal with our material goods. A few weeks ago now, uh, Scott got a letter, that, a personal letter that was sent here to the church. Now, whenever you get one of those personal letters sent to you at the church, you are both excited and nervous about what it is, right? You never know. Sometimes it's a great letter, a good letter that says, hey, you know, we really appreciate this. And sometimes it's a letter that says, we didn't appreciate this that much, but Scott got this letter, so we were excited, right? I, I mean, I wasn't there, but Scott, you know, Scott got the letter. He was excited. He opened it up, and inside of that was a letter, and, and, and it had come from, uh, from, from a couple of ZPCers who hadn't been here in over a decade. They moved away to another state, I think. They moved far away. They couldn't keep going here, and they wanted to just say how much they appreciated ZPC and, and how much it had shaped their lives, even this, you know, more than a decade ago. And they, and they talked about the fact that when they were at ZPC, they did a financial class, and for the first time, it really helped them to wrestle with, with what their faith and finances, like what, what those, how those connect. In fact, they said, you know what, we started, we kind of became tithers when we were there. And, and so as they were continuing to reflect, they said, you know what, and we wanted to, we wanted to thank you for that. And sure enough, inside there, there was a check. And it was a check for $25,000 given to the general fund, which, if you're wondering, is always the fund that we're hoping it's given to. And I wasn't there, and so I got a text from Scott. I was out of the, I was out of the country, actually. And so Scott texted me, and he told me about this. And two thoughts, I think they got there at the exact same time in my head. The first one was, praise God from whom all blessings and the second one was, cash that check right now. <laughs> because what if they made a mistake? Or as I was thinking about this week, what if they were not sober when they wrote that check? <laughs> now, why did I think that? Because it was so outlandish. Right? This came out of nowhere. This was not normal. And you could say, well, who knows? I mean, maybe they have a lot of money. Let me tell you something. I know a fair amount of people who have a lot of money. Just because you have a lot of money, oftentimes it means you begin to hold it more. Right? I've earned this. It is security. Right? When you find someone who is able to give freely and continue to give freely and to bless, it makes you feel weird. Right? And so I quickly said, what's going on with this person? Were they, were they okay? Were they, were they filled with the Holy Spirit? or were they filled with new wine? 
Or what about security? Security is something that is very important to us, right? Here in America, for our families, for all those kinds of things. I don't so much mean physical security as much, but I have a friend, I told you about him before, named Joel. He, he lives in Colorado now. He was a Presbyterian pastor for six years in Illinois. And then he and his wife and their three kids, he and his wife decided, you know what, this is, we, we want to do something different. And so they moved all the way to Denver and they decided that they were just going to start loving their literal neighbor. And so that's exactly what they started to do, right? They just started saying, we'll see what kind of, if, if a church develops out of this, that's great. We don't know, but we feel called to do this, to leave kind of the security of the job and to come and do this. Now, that's wonderful, except for this. I don't know if you know this or not, but loving your literal neighbor does not usually pay the bills. And he had three young kids, right? And so what did he start doing? Well, he started dumpster diving, right? He started looking for furniture in different places, and he started trying to kind of uh, refurnish it and then sell it, right? And this has been, it's been, he did that in 2011. It's been six years now. And I talk to Joel every couple of weeks or so, and I'm going to be real honest with you. I talk to him, and here's what I hear. On the one hand, I hear, wow, there are, there are some incredible things. After this many years, we're really starting to see the Spirit work. But there are also times when I call and I talk to him, and it's like I'm talking to somebody who's having a hangover. And he's like, I, what, was, what were we thinking? Why? Because of the fact that that's not easy. Right, to leave the security, right? To say we're going to trust in God completely. There is something about that that you wonder, what were we thinking? Had we been drinking when we made this decision? Or I even think, and I shouldn't say this, and, uh, um, and, and he's not going to be happy I do, but I think about my own cousin who happens to be here today, and I didn't ask him if I could talk about him at all because he would have said no. And so I think about my own cousin who's decided, right, he's, he lives in Marion, Indiana, which is a great place, but, 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 but there are easier places to live. And he's living in a particular neighborhood where he could live someplace else if he wanted to. They have the means, but his two kids have said, we are going to live right here in the middle of the city. We're going to go to a school that we know is not as great as some other schools that we could easily go to. And we are going to do this. And whenever I hear that story, whenever I hear him talk about this, and even the struggles, right? Because there are struggles. But every time I hear that, it makes me question what I'm doing, which is a beautiful but difficult thing. And I wonder at times, what were you drinking when you decided to do that? And don't you wish you could sober up and go someplace else? But he's decided not to. Why? Because the Spirit of God has filled him and said, this is what you are going to do, even if it doesn't make rational sense. Or a ZPCer that two and a half years ago I decided to have breakfast with, or he wanted to have breakfast with me, and he wasn't a ZPCer at that point, and he was kind of a, he was in his 30s, he hadn't really been going to church anywhere, I mean, it kind of was, was kind of a um, nominal perhaps, but he said, look, I really want, I want to grow in my faith, and you know, what I hear about that, a, a fair amount, I'm not going to lie, and it's easy to kind of become skeptical of that, right? I, okay, sure, and then a month later, you don't ever see the person. But sure enough, I said, all right, well, that's great. And so then a few weeks later, we started our home groups. There was a home group leader that was out there when he walked around, and he said, hey, why don't you come join our home group? And so we did, and we, we, we keep having breakfast, and, 
I keep watching him, and, he, and sure enough, slowly but surely, it's been remarkable to see how his life has begun to change. How all of a sudden, right, he, 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 he goes to Great Banquet. He begins to talk to people about Jesus. He begins to invite people into worship. Then last month, or, or two months ago, he went to Uganda for a week in order to work at a Christian orphanage. And I, I was thinking to myself this week, think about this. If you had been his friend two years ago, a person whose priorities were very different, and he would be the first person to say it. It was a much more kind of self-focus. If you had been his friend two years ago, and you had gone into a coma, and you woke up last month, and you saw him, guess what question you would have asked? Are you drunk? What happened to this guy that I used to know? How did you make that change? Or what about this? We're going to go a couple minutes long, but in Mongolia, they'd go even longer. What about this? Now, yesterday, as you all know, I have been uh, training for, uh, for the Monumental Marathon, teaming up with Team World Vision, uh, as, as over 50 of us around ZPC have. It's great. So I've been, every Saturday morning, I've been going to the Monon. Right? And I've been running along the Monon, and, you know, it's not been great. Yesterday was a really long run, and I didn't feel very good. But one thing I've noticed over the last several weeks is there is a particular gentleman who rides his bike along the Monon. And this is him right here. Now, it's the guy on the right. Not, uh, and so... This guy, I don't know anything about him. And, I, and, and if I wasn't so tired, I would have asked him if he was a follower of Jesus. I don't know if he is. I have a sneaking suspicion that he is. But even if he's not, we have something to learn from everyone, it seems to me. And so I finally decided, especially because I didn't feel good and I was looking for an excuse to stop, to stop this guy and say, can I get a picture with you? And the reason is this. This guy who rides his bike back and forth on the Monon as he is doing so. Have you seen him, Alex? Yeah, his name is Chris. And as he's doing so, he is like, you got this. Keep going. You got this. Keep going. Don't stop. Now, I don't know this guy from anybody. And I know, he, I, I mean, maybe he's just doing it to me because I look like I'm about to die, but I don't think so. <laughs> and he just goes and he just encourages you. And I said to him, I said to him, you know, because I kind of pulled him down. I said, can I get a picture? I said, you know, you are so encouraging. And he said, you know what? Well, if I don't, who's going to? And I thought, in a world where cynicism and skepticism and division is so prevalent, what if we decided as Christians that we were going to be the encouragers, right? What if we were going to be the people who were supportive? What if we were going to be the people in the midst of that to say, keep going? What if we were going to be the people who kept pouring hope into our young kids and into our older generations? What if that was going to be us? Now, I don't know what's in his water bottle. But I have a weird suspicion that he is someone who was filled with the Spirit. See, and here's the thing. Here's what happens, it seems to me. That when there are a group of people who are intoxicated by the Spirit and who are acting in such strange ways, that eventually what begins to happen is that the people on the outside begin to wonder well, we thought they weren't seeing straight, but maybe it's us who have the beer goggles on. Maybe we're the ones who aren't quite seeing the world as it really is. 
Now, I think a people who live with generosity, a people who say our security is in God alone, a people who say in the face of individualism, we are about community, a people who say that we do think that lives can be changed, and no matter where you have been, that your life can continue to change, a people who say we are going to continue to be full of hope because we know in who our hope resides, that a people like that, a Pentecost people, a Pentecostal people who are filled with the Spirit. I believe those are a witnessing people for whom those on the outside cannot ignore. And my hope and my prayer is that we will never be content to put the story of Pentecost up on a shelf or to minimize it, but we will ask ourselves, how might that spirit continue to come alive in us in such a way that we will live in a way in which people can't wonder if there isn't something wrong with us? This week, the homework, by and large, is the same as it was last week. You can't force the Holy Spirit. You can only pray for it. And so my hope is that this week we will both reflect and ask for the Spirit to continue to refill us anew. And perhaps also to give us the eyes to see in what way might we live in such a manner people couldn't help but wonder, are they filled with new wine? And to that we would say, indeed we are. It is the wine of the Holy Spirit given to reflect Jesus, the risen Savior. Amen? Let's pray.